Okay, we're going to pray. My goodness. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this opportunity to come and study your word. Lord, we just pray you will be with us through this, this service. We pray you will be with us in this country. And the things that turn over are facing right now, Lord. We know that you're in control, and that's the important thing to us. Let us remember that you're in control, and let us share the word
I'm going to read to you a proverb to get started this morning, and then I'd like to turn to Psalm 51. We always start in the psalm, but I'm going to actually read to you a proverb before we get there. (laughs) Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Let's take a look at uh, Psalm 51. And if your Bible has it, it should. Uh, there should be a, a superscription before the psalm starts. Somebody like to read Psalm 51, including the superscription? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Go for it. Go for it, Mitch. Okay. A contrite center of prayer for pardon. A choir director, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in inequity, and in sin my brothers conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in your innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know, make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Pray to me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take my, your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, and God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a spirit, broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. But your favor do by your favor do good to Zion, build the wall of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered by God. Amen. So we read in the, the superscription that this is a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And I'll give you a little bit of context here. Verses 1 through 17 were penned by David. Verses 18 and 19 were penned by the people after the captivity uh, when they had come to understand what David was saying. So, Where do you get that from? Pardon? Where do you get that from? Where do I get that from? Uh, if you look at verse 18, it says, By your favor, do good to Zion. Well, right there is a, a key that says this is um, out of context historically. The name Zion for that area was coined later in history. So it wouldn't have happened at the time that David wrote this. Because, as you recall, David was establishing... Uh, the city of David, the walled city, which was south of uh, the Temple Mount, just south of it, and that uh, he was securing the land. But Jerusalem, as Jerusalem, did not exist yet. And so when it says, build the walls of Jerusalem, it's talking about, this This is um, anachronistic uh, in that the sense that it, it's happened after the fact and it's reflecting back in time. So from the captivity standpoint, 
when the people, when Jerusalem had been built up through the kings and then destroyed by Babylon, and then they were in captivity and then released from captivity to go back and rebuild the city, that's when they would have had the pilgrim songs. Sometimes we think of them as the songs of ascent or the pilgrim songs, and there are specific psalms that are that way. This was most likely added from that retrospective by the people when they understood the purpose of the captivity. And so David is, and I love it the way he starts out, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. The very thing that he came to understand about what the king was supposed to do and how he was just a, a viceroy or a delegate of the king in order to administer God's plan and kingdom on this earth. He recognized that one of the most important aspects of that and the motivation behind it is God's loving kindness towards humanity. And so that's where he starts. And when the people were coming out of captivity, they come, came to understand the same thing. They came to understand this was the loving kindness of God. So they're then looking back at what had happened retrospectively and saying, God, be gracious to us. Show your loving kindness to us. Rebuild Jerusalem um, for us, just as God went with David. So uh, also you see in the next verse it says, And you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Again, that's uh, a retrospective for the temple, where the altar was formerly built and established on the, the Temple Mount. So that's why I say that was added afterwards. Um, if you read a lot of commentaries, you'll see that most people attribute that not to David, but to the pilgrims returning. That doesn't make it right, but I think that if you look at the evidence that's in there, that's why I would support it that way. So it's not David's words. And David ends with the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. So he's telling you the lesson, the takeaway that he got from his experience. And we're going to actually look at that experience this morning. Because if you look at what's been happening in David's life, you know, we talked about him going through God's character university um, and having been formed to be the king, and then actually ascending to the throne and doing what the king should do to provide, to protect, and to serve. Um, he all of a sudden gets full of himself, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, and he falls. And this is, this is something that we all need to pay attention to, because I think there's something broken in the way that we think, and, which is why God is working on us continually. So he's working on David continually, and that's, that's what that psalm expresses is, some of the things that David's learning. Did I answer the question? Okay. I know I sometimes give a lot of information, and you think, well, let's see, is he really answering the question? It's got a follow-up to it. It seems confusing to me as you're reading the Bible, you're reading the front of this, it says, this is this is from David. Yes. And yet, oh, there's no P.S. That's right, there's no P.S. Correct. And sometimes you'll actually see some editorial comments in the Bible, and we see that, for example, as we're going through Samuel, I point out every once in a while, I said, now the narrator has added this to help us understand. In the Psalms, you tend to not see very many editorial comments. Um, so when they were added to by someone else, either a redactor or an editor, or in this case, I think it was the pilgrims were singing this song, because it's a song of David's repentance, and they said, you know, we own this too. And I think that they added that on as a song, and it was recorded and became part of Scripture uh, in that way. Because this is part of the wisdom literature, which is the human response back to God's revelation. Um, and so it wouldn't be uncommon to have many perspectives, human response back. And so I, you're right, there's no PS. And, there's, and, and when I say some of these things, I always say, now, this is the best of my understanding. It could have actually been penned by David, and, uh, and the superscription that says this is all by David, well it doesn't say it's all by David, it says it's a psalm of David, could be inclusive of the whole thing. But I think that the internal evidence and extra biblical evidence would argue against that. So that's my opinion. This kind of like, since they're songs, we tend to read them as just 
literature right. that they were singing. It's like adding another verse. Uh, yeah, but it was adding a personalization of it. So they're singing um, almost 500 years after, about 500 years after David penned this. And all of a sudden they realize what it is that he's, he's saying, right? Because it had been part of their literature for a long time. And they had lost this, even though it was recorded. Uh, and David wrote it down and it was, you know, kept by uh, those that were responsible, the scribes that were responsible for keeping that kind of textual information. It had been preserved, but it had been lost from the people's vision. So Josiah, if you recall under Josiah, he actually found a copy of the written law, and it probably had some of these additional uh, writings associated with that. And that was at the time right before the captivity. So there was a period of time where even though the people were God's people, they didn't have the word in front of them. And they didn't have good examples. And they didn't have Sunday schools and sermons and things like that. So, I mean, it was totally out of their mind. And all of a sudden, after the captivity, it's like, oh, that's what David was talking about. I get it. And so they added their verse. Some of these songs, songs, like, like 57, it says... To the tune of "Do Not Destroy," so there there must have been known songs, right? And they would just adopt that tune. Well, and we do that too. And, and my wife points this out to me. A lot of our hymns that we hold dear yeah. are actually uh, bar songs, <laughs> and, uh, and they put words of God to it. You know, so, uh, yeah, I could go off on a So. <laughs> It's interesting that what God has created is good, which includes music and our joy in music. I think that music is uh, a way of communicating emotionally. And so a lot of the Psalms, you see a very emotive type expression. And that's why it's called wisdom literature. And that's why it was also sung. I think that's one of the reasons why they sang the Psalms. But in David in singing this, he's singing from the bottom of his heart. You know, he's singing about something that he learned that was very keen to him. And that's what we've been looking at. We've been looking about this ascension of David and how he's established what a good king looks like, what the proper execution of power is uh, among God's people. So the, the king is delegated God's authority, and with that authority comes the power to execute. Uh, when I say execute, the, the power to actually uh, do what God has asked him to do. So you see that when David goes out, for example, <clears throat> in uh, uh, chapter 8, and it talks about the victories that David had, it talks about that God was with him, right? Uh, and how David never took that as his own strength but the strength of God. And you see that in the Psalms, too. He talks about the power of God being his strength. That um, God is a strong foundation, and that that's who he stands upon. And we see that throughout the Psalms when you read David, because he has that uh, understanding that the power isn't his, it's God's. And the victory isn't his, it's God's. Well, you see that all the way up through the point where David says, what's now that I have peace on all sides, I've provided and I've protected, um, how can I extend that in God's kingdom? And he extends it through loving kindness to those that are displaced, to those that have no expectation of blessing or life. So he goes to his enemy and he says, come into my house, eat at my table. In a way, you can look at some of the Proverbs or the uh, the parables of Jesus where he talks about the wedding feast and how the wedding uh, provision was rejected by those that it was intended for. So he goes out and he says, everybody, come on in. And he desires a heart that is receptive to that. So people can't just come in and rest on God's uh, uh, provision without participation. But nonetheless, he makes it available to everybody. And that's what David's been doing. He's providing for his people, he's protecting for his people, and he's extending that out both to those that are directly of the family, 
He goes to Mephibosheth, but he also directs it out to the nations around. He makes alliances with uh, his enemies. So to kind of look a little bit further out here, we found that David had to go and conquer all around him, right? So if we're looking around Israel, David went as far up here to the north, uh, actually is Syria, and the northern boundary of Syria. So he went up here as far as the river Euphrates. So he came very far north in order to secure the passageway north south. And then he secured the coastal plain down here from the Philistines. And then he secured the invasion from the east among the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites. But when he got to Ammon, he actually made an alliance. And the reason why is because the king of this area right in here realized what David was doing and that they wrote the common heritage and said, look, I have no beef with you. I'm not going to attack you. And so David made an alliance with them. And that persisted until that king died. And that's where we're going to pick up our story today. And I'm going to actually read a large portion. So I'm going to read chapters 10, 11, and 12. And what you're going to see... dry throat here. Um, what you're going to see is that this is a book-ended narrative. The reason I'm reading such a large section this morning is because you'll see that there's a continuous story and that it starts with uh, a conquest of the land as a result of, a, of this alliance that went south and it ends with that very same thing. And so everything in the middle must have something to do with that. It's like a parenthetical um, explanation of what is on either end. So when you see a, a bookended portion of scripture or narrative, you want to figure out well, what's the message that's consistent across that whole narrative account. I realize that probably sounds like a lot of mumbo-jumbo, but hopefully it'll, it'll make sense here as we read through. Um, before I get started, because this is going to be a long read, uh, does anybody have any questions? Okay, here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 10. <clears throat> now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanan, this, uh, his son, became king in his place. Stop at verse 1. This is Ammon right here. So, yeah, I didn't get very far. <laughs> that, that's why I had this up first. I <laughs> someone else should read. Yeah. <laughs> we can do that. Does someone else want to read? Someone can read chapter ten, chapter eleven. Chapter 11. Um, so this is this is Ammon, and if you look today, this is the River Jabbok, which is where um, if you look at where Mephibosheth had gone to hide, it was near this this place called Manasseh, and so that's historically there was some relationship between this area. And and today, Amman, Jordan is like right over here, about right here. And uh, so this area is called uh, Ammon, all the way up in through here. Anyway. He was the son of Lot, right? Yes, one of the two sons of Lot, Moab and Ammon. So then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So here you see David doing what he's designed to do. So David sent some of his servants to console, console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent counselors to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servant and David's servants and shaved off half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. So this wasn't just giving them a beard to trim. It was actually, you know, like shaving one side of their face and cutting off their garments such that their bottom showed, which would be a great disrespect. Um, when, they, uh, when they told it to David, he sent, them, he, uh, he sent to meet them. 
For the men were greatly humiliated, and the king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, the sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Beth Rehob and the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. When David heard of it, he sent Job, uh, uh, Joab and all the army, the mighty men. The sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the field. I'll give you a little bit of context here. I'll take it back out. So, Aram is this area in the north, which is today Syria. And Damascus is right over around here. That's, you can see there's a little dot right there. There's Damascus. And so the king of Aram was in Damascus. And he had some soldiers. And then further, you know, another influential guy a little bit further to the east had some soldiers. And what happened is the king of Ammon looked around and said, okay, what armies can I enlist? What mercenaries can I get? And they came and set up in the field such that when David would come in, they would have to hit them first. That's what their plan was. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front, of, uh, in front and in rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against Arameans. So what happened is they flanked him. Uh, Joab had come up prior to these armies coming down, and so they were behind and then had an army in front of the Ammonites. So he squeezed in the middle. You read about this in, uh, in Psalm 60, what happens. But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. He said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong, and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab, returning from fighting against the sons of Ammon, uh, returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had a desert sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam, and Shobah, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. So basically what happened is, so this isn't just a bunch of, uh, bunch of names, so I can get this to go out a little bit. So here's the river Euphrates, here's Syria down here. Basically what he did is he enlisted armies from further north. And he said, you know, we're not going to be scared of these guys. Let's just get bigger numbers. And so he enlisted uh, from the north, and they go back against the Israelis. Now, when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobah, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the king's servants of Hadadezer uh, Had saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. In other words, David took his army, which was a very fierce army, and he went and he wiped out all of their tanks, all of their artillery, and killed 40,000 of their infantry, and then took the kings, who were like the generals of their various you know, uh, strong uh, forces, and made them servants. So David really seriously uh, kicked some rear. And uh, these, these people ended up withdrawing back to their area, and they were no longer a threat. And they weren't a threat before this. So it took David coming out as the king, being protector, in order to reestablish the security of Israel. 
Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to go out to battle, <coughs> that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. So this was about a year later that this happened. That's what it means, it says, and it happened in the spring. So the initial battle happened a year earlier, uh, and over the course of the next year, things played out and settled, and people went back to where they were from. Well, they're getting ready now to finish the job uh, with Ammon. So it took about a year. But David stayed back in Jerusalem. Emphasize that. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David said to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. We'll talk about that in a minute. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. Intense. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and by the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle, and withdraw from him, so that he may be struck down and die. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there was valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all of the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all, this, all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubesheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the beds? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent to him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished. 
which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many things more like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city. <coughs> Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. I have even captured the city of waters. <clears throat> now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it, or I will capture the city myself and it will be named after me. So David gathered all the people and went to Rabbah, and fought against it, and captured it. Then he took the crown of their king from his head, and it, its weight was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people who were in it, and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes, and made them pass through the brick kiln. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Long stretch. So what happened in this story? How did it start? That's right. David was supposed to go out and be with his people. 
and protect them, and he didn't. We see that there was this this battle that had come about as a result of um, treating David and the the people of God uh, with disrespect. Now, there was another story a while back that... uh, where David was treated with disrespect by a very foolish guy whose name was Nabal, which means fool, and Abigail came out and and interceded for her husband and said, this man's a fool. Don't pay any attention to him. So you don't need to wipe him out. Um, Rather, let God do what God's going to do. And David saw the wisdom in that and called back his men and let God do what God was going to do. And Nabal died in a matter of just a a few days afterwards. But here you see a very similar type of event. That uh, David has been personally disrespected. right? And that they think that David sent spies. And that they're going to tell him who's really in control. So they shaved half of their face, which would be a great dishonor, and cut up their garment so that their tush was shown, and sent them back. So what did David do? What did David do in this story? He went up and attacked them. Pardon? He went and attacked them. <clears throat> or he sent Joab to Yeah, he sent, he sent Joab. So... What should have David done? Gone instead of Joab. Or in front of Joab. Mm-hmm. Pardon? Instead of stop the Lord, he should do anything about it. That's right. Up until now, you find that when David was confronted with these situations, what he had learned is, I need to find out what God wants me to do. Mm-hmm. Right? Because God had already given him security here in the north. He had already uh, conquered those people once before. Had God changed his mind about what he was doing with Israel? Or was this something else? David didn't inquire and ask that question. He didn't ask, what do you want me to do, God? Rather, he sent uh, Joab. Joab got, got caught in the middle. So Joab got flanked and ended up they uh, put one army on the run but left the other one intact. And he came back to Jerusalem and then David went out and wiped out the, the armies from the north. Took all their, you know, destroyed their tanks, wiped out 40,000. But in all of that, he didn't ask, what do you want me to do, Lord? And then it happened, a year later, that David sent Joab to finish the, finish the work that, had been, that he had started. So he sent Joab back in to uh, beat the armies that were here in Ammon. But David stayed back. So he made two mistakes. What were the mistakes that David made? Wasn't the king supposed to lead the battle? The king was supposed to lead the battle. So he didn't go out. And the king was supposed to lead the battle under the direction of God. You know, you'll find it as you read through the kings, uh, the account of the kings, there are certain kings that are characterized as good kings, and then there are some that are bad kings. There were no good kings from the, from the north, there were only eight in the south and in Judah. Of those good kings, one of them found himself in a very similar situation. He was completely surrounded by armies from Moab, from Edom, um, from the north, and he did what David should have done. He inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said, don't worry about this. Uh, I've got this in, in control. What I want you to do is I want you to gather all the people and I want you to go out and sing songs on your way and park on this hill and watch what I'm going to do. Does anybody remember who that was? That's right, Jehoshaphat. And his prayer, when he prayed, he said, Lord, 
we're in a place that we shouldn't be in. We're in the thick of it. We're pressed. What do we do? It was a prayer that moved heaven, in the words of Ron Mel. It's a great book if you ever want to read it. It's a little short read. It's called A Prayer That Moves Heaven. And it's a story of Jehoshaphat and that battle. And that's what David was supposed to do. And that's what David didn't do. First mistake. Second mistake. He figured he had a good handle on it, and he stayed back. So even though he started this mess, he wasn't willing to go forth and lead the battle. He didn't consult God. He didn't lead the battle. Instead, he hangs out, and he goes to... uh, I'll give you a picture of what this kind of looks like. So this is a model, that model that I've shown you of of Jerusalem in the first century. So this would have been a thousand years after... uh, this account that we're reading about. But nonetheless, it shows this area right here, which is called the City of David. So the Temple Mount is, is up here, and it hasn't become the Temple yet. That happens under Solomon. But this, what you see is a, a, a slope going down, and it's a very steep valley here. This is the Kidron Valley. And this is the City of David that he took from the genocide. And where his palace would have been, would have been right here, at the top of the city. So the walled city would have gone like this, and I can show you one more picture to give you another perspective, but I wanted to come back to this one. Um, Okay, so here's the city of David from another angle, going all the way down (coughs) to where the Hinnom Valley coming across here meets the Kidron Valley. And there's uh, the pool of uh, Siloam where the water from the well runs into down at the bottom here. But this walled area, even preserved here in the first century, was called the city of David. And where David had his palace was at the top of that hill that was walled. And he would have been looking down from his rooftop of his palace over all of the houses in his uh, city. Now, in that part of the world, people live on the roof. I don't know if you knew that. You know, we live in our houses because it rains all the time. They live on the roof because it's cool. Right? So it is not uncommon that you do everything on the roof. You cook on the roof. You clean on the roof. um, You sleep on the roof. Right? The, The lower chambers are for the animals. So you actually read about this in the judges where there was a judge that, um, he said, whatever comes out my door, I'll sacrifice to the Lord, because he expected that one of his animals would come out the door. Well, it didn't. It was his daughter. That's right. So he didn't expect his daughter to be down in the house. He expected her to be up on the roof. So for David to go out on his roof and look around would have been a very common thing. And for a woman to be bathing on the roof would have also been a fairly common thing. But David was not supposed to be there. Right? Not because he wasn't supposed to go on the roof, but because he was supposed to be out in battle. And he looks around and he sees this beautiful woman. And he says, who is that? And the answer is, oh, well that's uh, Bathsheba and gives the name of uh, her, her family and her husband. And it turns out that they're someone of influence and that her husband happens to be one of David's David's mighty men. We find out that Uriah the Hittite, who was from outside of Israel, he was a Hittite, um, actually became, like Caleb, part of Israel um, through, uh, in, in a form, was kind of like a, a being a proselyte Jew, but he became a full Jew. And so Uriah the Hittite was a great warrior, and he would fight for David no matter what one of his mighty men. There was just a few of David's mighty men. And he, and he finds out, oh, this is Uriah's wife. David's third mistake. <coughs> what was his third mistake? Taking advantage of her. That's right. <coughs> Misuse of power. He took advantage of her. He sent for her. And one of the things that you'll see is that this verb to send for is used 23 times in this, this story. 
That's an unusual occurrence, even for a common verb like that. Because what you see is that this is a power play going on. This is a struggle between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. That's what's happening here. And that's why this verb is continually used. David sent, David sent, David sent, God sent, God sent, God sent. You see this battle going on. And David's third sin was a misuse of power. So as God's delegates, delegate kings, are supposed to use God's power according to God's will and not according to their own will. And David gave in to his own will. Now you can take this all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is the same battle. Right? Uh, you take it all the way forward into the New Testament. And John says in 1 John 2.14, and I'll take you there because this is, a, this is a key verse everybody should memorize in 2.15. It says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in it. Two kingdoms. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's why I started with that proverb. There is a way that looks right to a man, but the end thereof is death. David fell right into it. And it wasn't a single thing that caused it. It was a series of events. When you read this, the whole ascension of David and the whole decline of David, it wasn't a single thing. The single choice was already made by the time he got there. By the time he walked out onto his palace roof and looked around, his mind was already broken. It had been broken because the mind follows the heart, right? Remember when I drew that out? It starts with what you believe and value, the condition of your heart, and how that moves into your thoughts. And then it affects the choices that you make, and the actions you take, and the habits you keep, and ultimately the destiny, destiny that you reap, right? I drew that line. David's heart was already in the wrong place and was evidenced by everything he was doing before he even walked up onto the roof. So the choice was already made, and it was a misuse of his power and his will that was the sin. What was the passage there, John? Pardon? What was that passage? Uh, which one? First John, the last one we just First John 215 through 17. 2.15. Yep. And what you see is you see this, this battle going on all the time. This is our battle, folks. <coughs> David, the Psalms, talks about God's loyal love. And Uriah is somebody that loves David. He has left his own people to line up with David. He has fought on David's side. He has done everything possible he could. He has shown loyal love. Yes. David in doing this is repaying love the treasure. That's right. And and that is so uh, keenly revealed. So, so David makes a mistake. And he takes Uriah's wife. And then it says that after she had purified herself. So what that means is that there was uh, it, she was clearly not pregnant when she uh, came into David's uh, presence. And when she left, she was. That's what that's saying. That David knew that there was no way that Uriah could have been the father. So he knew that this was totally his sin. That he totally owned it. And that Uriah was this loyal, fiercely loyal man. That's why he's called one of David's mighty men. Because of that very heart that you just described. And David does this incredibly treacherous thing. First, he wants to cover up his sin. So he says, send me Uriah. If Uriah comes and I send him home, clearly he'll sleep with his wife. He's been out in the field for a long time. That happens. 
So let's send him home, let's hope for the best. Uriah is so loyal, he won't go home. So David goes to plan B. Let's get him drunk so that he won't know what happened. Now there was somebody else in the Bible that did that, that led to Moab and Ammon. If you read back in Genesis, that's exactly what the daughters of Lot did uh, in order to conceive and have children. They got their father drunk. And so David's thinking, hey, this worked once before. <laughs> Let's get the man drunk and send him home. Uriah gets drunk because he's at the king's table and the king is, is uh, forcing uh, the, you know, the spirits down his throat. And so sure enough, Uriah's drunk and he is so loyal that even in his um, incapacitated state, he will not leave the king's service. He sleeps with the king's servants. And finally, David says, okay, that's not going to work. There's nothing I can do to cause this man to become disloyal. Therefore, I'm going to set him up to get killed. And he's been in battle. He knows how it works. In fact, when Joab says, now, if the king gets angry when you tell him of the report of the battle, this is what you say. Tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed. Because David knows, you don't go anywhere near the walls. That's where they're going to shoot at you and kill you. Right? Um, what about verse 8? You said you were... uh, chapter 11. Yep. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Oh, yes. <laughs> wash your feet. Okay. I got two minutes. <laughs> you recall that when uh, Ruth was uh, instructed to go to Boaz, she was to uncover his feet. That was a uh, request um, to come under his covering or to have, uh, it, was, it was a way that, like women today, it's not uncommon, uh, they'll ask the guy, because guys are like clueless, hey, will you marry me, right? <laughs> so guys are clueless today, so they, women do this today too. Well, back in, in this day, because Boaz may not have understood the relationship, uh, Naomi said, uncover his feet, because that's a request um, for marriage, which uh, is consummated, right? So this idea of washing feet, have your feet washed, that's the nice way of the Bible saying, go home and have sexual relationship with your wife. So that's what David said to Uriah. He wants him to not misunderstand. I don't want you to just go home and have a fine meal. <laughs> not what he's saying he's saying I want you to go home and have relationship sexual relationship with your wife and that's that's very clearly stated that's what the Bible says um, so it's just a nice way it's a euphemism of saying you know have relationships with your wife and so now I got derailed where was I? <laughs> very very delicately Pardon? I couldn't leave you hanging on that. But the, the point is, is that David knew that, and he had historical experience that, remember when you came too close to the wall and this woman threw a millstone over and it killed one of our warriors? Don't do that, right? And so if Joab did that, he wants to go and rip his lips off and say, hey, what are you doing? You're not being a good general. And that's when Joab says, oh, just tell him that Uriah the Hittite was killed. That's your trump card. And so David does this incredibly devious, evil thing. And he gets called on the carpet. I guess that's where we'll pick up next week. <laughs> because we want to understand what happens when our thinking is broken and all of a sudden God corrects it. And he does that through the Holy Spirit. He challenges us. He comes to us. God is not going to leave us but rather in his loving kindness is going to come to us and point out our sin. And it's his desire to restore us, but there are consequences. So let's go ahead and we'll pick that up next week. Lord, we just thank you for this time that we can be together and, um, and what you're teaching us, Lord, about who you are, what your kingdom looks like, what you call us uh, to do within your kingdom how we can draw near to you. All of this is in here, Lord. And how we fail in that. And how, even in our failure, you reach out to us. We know that 
It isn't sacrifice that you desire, but a broken and contrite heart. Lord, help us to have a broken and contrite heart this morning over our own sin, over those things that would separate us from you. Lord, help us to see clearly uh, the calling of the world such that we don't fall into it. Help us to avoid that and to always choose your kingdom and what you would have us to do. Lord, I ask that you would uh, be with us as we leave here, that you would keep us safe, that you would challenge us in all of these different areas, that you would be with uh, Pastor Bob this morning as he presents your word, that it would challenge us, that your spirit would speak to our heart and convict us, and Lord, that we would have the the courage to respond uh, to what you're calling us to do. Lord, give us that strength. Lord, we thank you for all of this, and we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.